Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Luke. It says Matthew in your bulletin. That is totally my fault. For some reason, I want to put this story in Matthew, but it's in Luke, okay? That's the only gospel that has it. So turn to Luke chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What were you like when you were a child? <laughs> a brat? <laughs> were you loud and rambunctious? Were you quiet and shy? Did you have a lot of friends? Did you kind of stay to yourself? How many of you had a pet growing up? All right, a lot of you did. Maybe a dog, cat, hamster. Anybody here have a pet snake? All right, watch out, Monique. He's got pet snakes, all right. How about a horse? Anybody here ever have a horse? Got a few of you? All right. What were you like growing up? Did you play in the band? Did you ever take piano lessons? Got a few of you. Obviously, Sheila did. Thank you, Sheila. All right. What were you like as a kid? Well, I was a pretty good kid growing up. I uh, went to church all the time. My parents did have a drug problem, though. They drugged me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. <laughs> good folks. I made decent grades in school, but I'm not positive that I could have passed shop class. To this day, I can't saw a board on a straight line, and some of you folks know that. I can't hammer a very long nail without bending it. If something needs to be fixed at the Roberts house, my wife, Monique, says, go get me my toolbox, and I do, and I watch her do it. She can't do it. I'll call Mike Crutcher or Paul Schultz or one of these other guys. Got to get her done. Well, about 12 years ago, we were living in Cadiz, Kentucky, and some folks were finishing our basement, and uh, Michaela's in like kindergarten, and Michaela says, I want a toolbox. And so Mama went out, and she got Michaela a toolbox, and I found it in the storage shed just the other day. It says Michaela's toolbox on it. You see it there? On the back it says, Miss Fix It, okay? That was her toolbox. You remember that? Well, I was a little jealous because Monique had a toolbox and Michaela had a toolbox. I didn't have a toolbox. So Monique got me a toolbox. It says Daddy's toolbox on it. I just noticed this morning, Michaela's toolbox looks a little bigger than my toolbox. <laughs> and it's got more tools in it than mine does, and she can probably use them better than I can. <laughs> Monique always says that uh, I'm a little absent-minded, and I was absent-minded growing up. She says I haven't improved. By the way, where was I? Let me get back to my sermon over here. Yeah. 90% of the time, I was a really good kid. Stayed out of trouble. Didn't get into much. But there was that one time on Halloween night when Billy Sturdivant and I saw the Melchers pumpkin. The Melchers lived kind of down the road from me, and they weren't real popular. And uh, they weren't probably the, the kindest people in the community. But they had these two beautiful jack-o'-lanterns. 
And Billy Sturdivant happened to have a, a couple of packs of firecrackers. And so we went up to the Melcher's house, snuck up there, and he pulled the lid off of one of those jack-o'-lanterns, and I pulled the lid off the other jack-o'-lantern, and we dropped those firecrackers in there. Pow, 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 blew those things to smithereens. I felt so bad about that later. Like three years later, I go to the Melchers and I apologize and I try to offer money to pay for their pumpkins. But anyway, that was one of the times I got in trouble. But usually I was a pretty good kid. We don't know a lot about what Jesus was like as a child. I'm pretty sure he never blew up anybody's pumpkins. And I'm almost certain he could saw a board in the straightest line. And he can hammer nail after nail after nail without bending a one. After all, he grew up in a carpenter shop and was probably a carpenter himself until about the age of 30. Not to mention, he made the entire universe to begin with. See John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. Now, Jesus has always been God, and he always will be God. But when Jesus came to earth, he became fully man. I'm pretty confident he wasn't talking with a full vocabulary at 10 days old or building tables in Joseph's carpenter shop at the age of two. He wasn't performing miracles as a five-year-old, although he was a pretty amazing child. We'll get that in a bit. Today, we begin a brand new series on the book of Luke. More than any other New Testament book, Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus and his concern for the downcast in society. One of the major themes in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if you get nothing else from this series, make sure you get that. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how mightily you might think that you failed, God loves you. Turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you. He really does. More than you have the capacity to love God loves you. You don't have to get your act together first. You don't have to go to church a hundred times first. You don't have to read the Bible through first. God loves you right where you are. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrated his love for you. And that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died on the cross for your sin. He didn't wait for you to even think about attempting to get your act together. He saw you there in your sin and he died for you on the cross. God loves you. So for the next several weeks, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. We won't get through all of it, but we will cover a lot of it. Maybe we'll finish it another time soon. We're going to skip the stuff we normally cover at Christmas, found in the beginning pages of Luke, and go to the end of chapter 2 where we find Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Verse 41 tells us that every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, were practicing Jews, and Jewish adults were supposed to go to the Passover feast. It was a big deal. And you might remember what the Passover feast symbolized. Some 1,400 years earlier, the people of Israel were living in Egypt as slaves. And God sent Moses down to Egypt with a message for Pharaoh. He was like the king. And Moses told Pharaoh, 
God said, let my people go. Pharaoh didn't want to do it. And God hardened his heart later. But God sent plague after plague after plague after plague after plague, nine plagues in all, and Pharaoh still will not let God's people go. But then God sends plague number 10. And number 10 was a little different and a little bit more intense. God said, I am going to kill the firstborn of every Egyptian in every household in the country. But the Jews, the, the Israelites, if you will take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and you will kill that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of your houses, your children will be spared. And so they did. And when the death angel came to the house of the Egyptians, the firstborn in every household was killed. But when God came to the Israelite homes, not a child died because they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their houses. And Jesus Christ, all this is leading up to him because he would become the lamb, the spotless, sinless lamb of of God who would take away the sins of the world. And here is Jesus going with his parents to the Passover feast, verse 42. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. When a Jewish boy reached the age of puberty, he became a son of the covenant, a custom that has continued today in the Jewish bar mitzvah ceremony. It was considered helpful for a Jewish boy to attend a year or two early. So he could understand what was involved. Well, here in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is getting ready to come of age. So, verse 43, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a whole day. Then finally they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. How could these parents be so unaware? Did they not do a head count? How many of you ever went on a trip with your kids and you did a head count? I remember traveling with the choir and with the band to Disney last year, and I was in charge of the head count on our bus. Probably not the best person put in charge because I'm a little absent-minded, but we didn't lose a kid. How could they not know that Jesus was missing? What's wrong with these people? They can't keep up with the most responsible child of the whole caravan? Where are social services when you need them? Just kidding. There's actually a reasonable explanation. Truth be told, it would have been easy to lose a child along the way. You see, when Jews would go to the Passover feast, they would travel in large groups, dozens, maybe hundreds of people. Perhaps a large portion of the entire town would go together, and the men would hang out together, and the women and children would hang out together, and so Mary and Joseph likely were not together in the same group and Jesus was kind of a tweener. At age 12, he was old enough to, to kind of hang out with the men. But he was young enough to kind of hang out with the women and the other children. And so Mary could have thought that Jesus was with Joseph and the 
men, and Joseph could have thought Jesus was with the women and the children. So anyway, they don't know where Jesus is. They can't find him. So they head back to Jerusalem looking for Jesus, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, and what's he doing? He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. The boy is only 12 years old, but he has incredible insight. And these religious scholars are like, wow, we've never heard anybody who asked questions like this, who had answers like this, and the kid is only 12 years old. It's amazing. And Jesus hasn't even reached his full potential yet. Remember, when Jesus came to earth, he was born as a baby, and he grew intellectually every year. We'll get to that in a moment. When Jesus left heaven willingly and temporarily, he gave up many of his privileges as God. He was a pretty strong kid, but he didn't have superhuman strength. I think he was the smartest 12-year-old on the planet, but he didn't literally know everything at 12. He didn't come out of the womb walking. He probably wasn't an, average, an avid reader at age 2. I know some of you were, but you also walked to school three miles uphill in the snow every day. I get that. Just messing with you. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. At the same time, he wasn't your typical 12-year-old. He was amazing. If you don't believe that, ask these religious scholars. I know you can't ask them. They're dead. But if they were alive, they could tell you this Jesus, this child, this 12-year-old boy had incredible answers like we'd never heard from a person his age before. Go to verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Jesus wasn't all-knowing as a 12-year-old, but he did understand his priorities. He said, I must be about my father's business, or probably more literally, I must be in my father's house. Jesus is affirming two things here. First, he had a unique relationship with his heavenly father. Jesus didn't say he had to be in our father's house. Jesus said, I had to be in my father's house. Apparently, Jesus already understood that he had a special relationship with God the Father. Mary didn't have that. Joseph didn't have that. Billy Graham didn't have that. The Pope doesn't have that. Jesus was uniquely the only begotten Son of God. He was the second person in the Trinity, just as much God as though he had never left heaven. And just as much man as though he'd never been there. Just as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Yet while on earth, he was totally human. Now, here's the good news. Even though you cannot ever become God, you can be adopted as a child of God. John 1.12 says this. As many as received him, as many as received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, to those he gave the right, the power, the privilege to become the children of God. No matter what you have done, no matter how mightily you might think that you have failed, no matter what your issue, what your struggle, what your problem, what your need, Jesus Christ loves you. 
so much that he came to this earth to die on the cross for your sin. And if you receive the gift of salvation and give your life to Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You can be right with God today. You could have walked into this building today not knowing Christ as your Savior and Lord or boss in charge of your life. And you can leave here knowing that you have eternal life by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. The next verse in this chapter, John 1.13, says, As believers in Jesus Christ, we are children, born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I remember when our men's ministry was expanding and remodeling our house over there in Sunningdale Way, and they spent hundreds and hundreds of hours over there, sometimes 8, 10, 12 men at one time, and ladies would come to fix food. Paul Schultz is here. He was in charge of the construction. Mike Childers, Mike Childers did some in the background, but Mike Crutcher I'm looking at right now was there every day. Dan Porter. How many of you did some of the work at our house six or so years ago? Randy Crank, Gerald, I see others. Thank you so much. It meant so much to us. It still does. But anyway, when we're getting close to being done, I told all the guys and the ladies, I said, Let's write scripture verses all over this house. We don't have the carpet down yet. We're going to paint on the walls yet. Let's take markers and let's write scripture all over this place. And so we did. And I chose Ephesians 3.20, one of my life verses. It says, we serve a God who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, immeasurably more than all we can ask or think or even imagine. And Monique chose Psalm 37 for her life verse that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love both of those verses. We asked Michaela, Michaela, what do you want for your verse? And Michaela's 10 years old at the time, and she picks this verse here. John chapter 1, verse 13, and she writes it right over the door to her room. You didn't know that, did you, Chelsea? Right over the door of the room. And it's painted over. Now, you can't see it, but it's there. And the scripture says this. Let me read it again. We are children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Isn't that good news? How many of you are adopted? If you know Jesus Christ, you're adopted. Maybe not in this world according to how we see it, but how God sees it. You are an adopted child of God if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, we could say daughters as well, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As followers of Jesus Christ, you are a joint heir with him, with Jesus Christ, your older brother, as an adopted son of God. Still, Jesus had a unique relationship with his heavenly father. And he understood the purpose of God was his priority. 
more than anything else, when Jesus walked the face of this earth, his goal, his plan was to do the will of the Father. And that should be our goal as well, to do the will of God, what he's called us to do in our lives, in this world, while we walk the face of this earth. And some of you might think, well, I don't know if I really want to do that. I kind of like being in charge of my own life. Well, think about this for just a moment. How many of you think you know more than God does? Hopefully, you didn't raise your hand. Some of you may act like it sometimes, but you don't. See, God knows everything. How many of you can be everywhere at the same time? Sometimes we try to be, sometimes we're expected to be, but none of us can do that, right? God knows everything. God can be everywhere at the same time. And how many of you have unlimited strength? Not one of us, right? Only God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and able to be everywhere at the same time. Why would you not want to partner with him in your life? Well, it makes sense, right? Take your finger like this, okay? On three, I want you to snap it with me. One, two, three. Try it again. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two. Okay. It's enough. Compared to eternity, your life on this earth is less than a snap of the finger in length. And eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Yet so often we live our lives as though this were it. This is not it. Eternity is forever. And God has called you to partner with him in this very brief time called life to prepare you for what he has in eternity, which is going to be more amazing than you can ever imagine. Why would we not want to follow Jesus Christ? And by the way, he loves you more than you have the capacity to love. Isn't that incredible? More than you love your children. More than you love your grandchildren, and that's a lot. More than you love your husband, more than you love your wife, more than you have the ability to love, God loves you. No matter who you are, no matter how mildly you might think that you failed, God loves you. Jesus died for you, and he's offering hope. He's offering life. He's offering forgiveness for every single person who will receive it by the grace of God. Jesus told his parents, Joseph and Mary, do you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And Mary and Joseph were like, uh, no, not really. Go to verse 50. But they did not understand what he was saying then. Let me say two things here. First of all, you're not Jesus. You're not God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not God. <laughs> Some of you may want to act like you're God, but you're not him, okay? There is a God and you are not him, okay? That's a good t-shirt. However, if you follow God with all your heart, you will also be misunderstood. If you follow God with all of your heart and you put into practice the Word of God and you follow the Spirit of God as it lives inside of you, you are going to make some decisions that the world is going to think are silly. They're wrong. They don't make sense to the world. 
Jesus was misunderstood. And if you follow Jesus, there will be times when you will be misunderstood as well. But you follow him anyway. Verse 51. Then Jesus went down to Nazareth with his parents and was obedient to them. Even though Jesus was only 12 years old here, there's a really good chance that Jesus was already a lot smarter than his parents. How many of you think so? He's not omniscient yet, but I think he probably knows more than mom or dad. Well, let me tell you something. If you're a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old or 17-year-old, you probably don't know more than mom and dad do. Jesus did. And yet the Bible says he obeyed his parents. If you want to be obedient to God, a part of being obedient to God, young people, is being obedient to your parents. Now, I'm not telling you to follow them if they're telling you to do drugs or to go rob a bank or do something totally unsafe or totally against what God's Word would teach. But cleaning your room, I don't think that qualifies. Not smart back, I don't think that qualifies. Obey your parents. Follow the example of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean, Mom and Dad, that you get to tell your kids to do when they're 45 years old. Hey, I noticed you stayed out past 1030. You're in trouble now. Really? Think about it. When Jesus was 30 years old or so, he started his ministry. He didn't come to Mary and say, hey, Mom, I've been thinking about a list of disciples here. I got Peter. I got James. I got John. I'm thinking about Judas. And Mary said, hey. That Peter, he's got a big mouth. I don't think I'd pick him. James and John, you know, they're known for a bad temper. Let's stay away from them. And that Judas guy, I haven't had a good feeling about him all along. Jesus didn't do that, did he? But he did consult his heavenly Father. In everything that we do, we should consult our heavenly Father. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask our parents if they're good and godly parents, even at 45 or 30 or whatever, for advice and wisdom because they often give good counsel. But ultimately, we follow the purpose and the plan of God. The last part of verse 51 is one of the most interesting statements in the chapter. But Mary, Jesus' mother, treasured all these things in her heart. She'd already seen a lot. There was the announcement of the angel before Jesus' birth. And there were the shepherds and wise men visits after his birth. And when they came to the temple, they got a special word from Anna and Simeon about him. And now here is Jesus in the temple with these religious scholars, and he's blowing them away. This young man really is special, more than anyone else could have imagined. Verse 52 gives us a brief summary statement about the early years of Jesus' life. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And favor with God and men. Southern Baptist scholar A.T. Robertson says, is like this. His physical, intellectual, moral, and spiritual development was perfect. At each stage, he was perfect for that stage. Not only was Jesus' development perfect in every stage, it was also balanced. Say the word balanced with me. Balanced. He grew in wisdom. He grew intellectually. 
He understood how to make wise decisions. He grew in wisdom and in stature. That means he grew physically. Okay, now some of us, when we get to be 18, 19, 20 years old, we can stop growing physically, okay? Some of us are still doing it, okay? But what he's saying here, I think the application for us would be that we should take care of our physical bodies. We should grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. That's the most important thing. To grow in our walk with God, to grow in our relationship with God, to grow in our fellowship with God, to grow in our obedience to God. He grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and with men. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to be weird, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, you don't have to be weird. Sometimes we do weird stuff that we don't have to do, okay? However, if you follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, sometimes the world will probably think you're weird, okay? If somebody off the street came into this building today and they saw somebody in this room raising their hands and think, these people are weird. Now, I don't get that. Because if you do that in this room, you're weird. If you go to a rock concert and do it, hey, you're not weird at all. You're just fed in, right? Anyway, we've got to be like Jesus Christ with wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. Most importantly, Jesus had the favor of God upon his life. Remember when Jesus was baptized? The Holy Spirit comes down upon him like a dove. And this voice comes from heaven, the Father. What's he say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. A little bit later, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament appear with him. And Peter gets so excited, says, hey, let's just stay here. Let's not leave. Let's build a little place for you, a little place for Moses, a little place for Elijah. This is great. This is awesome. Voice comes from heaven again, what's it say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ was God's only begotten son. And his priority in life was to know and obey the will of the Father. And that should be our priority as well. Not to make a lot of money, not to be really popular. Not to have a great big house or early retirement, but our goal in life above everything else should be to know God and to follow him. And one day hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that we all will hear that one day. Maybe some of you are sitting in this room today, you're not sure. Do you even know Christ? Today's your day. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. If you do know Christ, I encourage you and challenge you. Follow him with all of your heart. No, it's not always the easiest way to live. But I can guarantee on the authority of God's word, it is the best way to live. Why not? follow Jesus. Would you pray with me?